The Destiny Foundation is proud to present this special lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. We hope you enjoy. The Holocaust uh, has had a ripple effect over the over 60 years uh, since it took place. Uh, And these ripples reflect themselves in various forms of behavior, uh, some of which, uh, in fact, most of which uh, is somewhat irrational. But the Holocaust itself is the greatest irrationality, and therefore we should not expect uh, that the response to it should, so to speak, be logical, philosophical, restrained. I want to speak tonight about one of the ripple effects, and that is the creation of a whole school of thought which is called Holocaust denial. Now, at first uh, glance, uh, this should be an impossibility. Uh, There's enough film, uh, there are enough witnesses uh, that... uh, it would be like denying uh, that it's night out now. But we find that uh, Holocaust denial is to a certain extent a thriving industry. And uh, it has many ramifications to it. And it appears in many, many different forms. And to a certain extent, as I hope to point out later, it it exists within the Jewish people also. And it exists amongst uh, very uh, staunch representatives of the Jewish people, not just uh, the fringe elements, not just the lunatics. And therefore, uh, I think that it would be important for us to have uh, some understanding as to how such a denial can even exist Uh, but perhaps even more importantly to realize what it does to us and how it affects. It's one of the ripples, one of the waves uh, that came after the awful events of over 60 years ago. You know, there's a strange thing uh, that has occurred in the world and that is that uh, fictional movies or uh, semi-documentary movies uh, have been created regarding the Holocaust. Uh, probably uh, Spielberg's Schindler's List is uh, the most famous, uh, but there are other uh, such uh, movies uh, <clears throat> Life is Beautiful, a few others. And it was brought home to me uh, on the El Al plane as I was flying back this morning. Uh, So El Al canceled the usual movies that it uh, shows on its uh, transatlantic flights. Those are all, by the way, rejects that don't make it into the movie theaters. (laughs) And instead, they, uh, they uh, had as a program uh, three movies about the Holocaust. Not documentaries, but I think one of them is Life was, is Beautiful, and then a 
two other movies, I forget what he announced, I, I didn't watch them. But I thought about it, uh, because it reminded me of something that someone said to me once. Uh, he said that he felt that Spielberg's movie, for instance, as great as it was, in a certain instance did us a disservice, because it made it a movie. No, a movie is not real. Even the real movies are not real. Uh, I'm in the midst of producing a number of documentaries, and every time I show a documentary, people come up afterwards and they said, oh, well, who, did the, who was the actor that played so-and-so? And I said, there was no actor, that was him. But when you see it in the movie... Uh, so it automatically conjures up in the mind of the people who see it the idea that somehow it's not real. And therefore, uh, for all the good that it does, it carries with it a negative message as well. And one could say, therefore, that it's not the solution to Holocaust denial but it may well be part of the problem itself. What are the driving forces of Holocaust denial in the non-Jewish world? In the non-Jewish world, especially in academia, uh, it is easier to get a Ph.D. denying the Holocaust than proving it. Because everybody wants something new. And if you can only show that somehow it wasn't, uh, then it has great standing. Well, the first thing is uh, that anti-Semitism lives. I was in Warsaw a number of years ago. I was in Warsaw for a day and a half. Uh, and... On the street in Warsaw, a 16, 17-year-old boy came up to me and said, Heil Hitler. So I thought to myself, you know, three and a half million Poles were killed by the Germans in the Second World War. Jews weren't the only ones that were killed. What does that mean, Heil Hitler? <coughs> But it's so baked in to the psyche of much of European society, it's hard to erase 1,500 years in five. And therefore, uh, this becomes a convenient method. So you have on one hand uh, that the country of Poland, its largest tourism industry is Auschwitz. And most of the tourists that go to Poland have a connection to the Holocaust. And it brings them in a great deal of tourist dollars. Apparently there are not other great attractions to visit Poland. But on the other hand, 
the people in Poland, I'm not speaking of the government, the people in Poland, and to a great extent the church in Poland yet today, has uh, blatant anti-Semitism. And therefore, uh, Holocaust denial uh, becomes an expression of anti-Semitism. You think something happened to you, it never happened. You made up the whole story. You're just looking for sympathy. And uh, because of that, other things flow from it. Uh, People say, well, the state of Israel came into being because the world had great sympathy for what was done to the Jews in World War II. Probably a true statement. Well, if we can prove that it wasn't done to the Jews in World War II, so then uh, there really is no reason for the state of Israel. If you listen to the president of Iran, so he says it clearly. He says there never was a Holocaust, and the state of Israel is illegitimate, and he's going to get rid of it, God forbid. Are the two tied together? Because, at least in the minds of much of the Muslim world, and perhaps much of the Christian world as well, The only justification for the state of Israel being here is not the Bible. It's not that God gave it to us. It's none of that. It's because six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, and there were 250,000 left, and we have to put them somewhere, so they came here, and that's how the state of Israel came into being. But if somehow we justify the fact that it did not happen that way, Uh, then we are an illegitimate nation. And therefore, that is the expression of the uh, connection between Holocaust denial, anti-Semitism, and the current spate of anti-Israel ideas which exist throughout the world. There's a second idea that I think fuels this uh, Holocaust denial. And that's a sense of bitter shame and bankruptcy. That European civilization uh, that thought that it was uh, the high point of everything that was good in the world. Especially 19th century Europe, uh, who the Europeans felt uh, it was... uh, noblesse oblige, they had to take uh, European civilization all over the world uh, to all of the countries that were still backward countries. And the world was getting better and better. The technology was improving. Everything was improving. The 19th century was shattered by the events of the 20th century. But the greatest shattering... Uh, was the fact that uh, all the 19th century philosophers believed that man was moral, that there was a basic code of morality that 
encompassed us. And that made religion superfluous. Because what do you need religion for? It just have to be a good person. Which is a slogan that is heard throughout the world today. And it's heard in the Jewish world as well. What do we need all of this for? We just have to be good people. And then it ended up uh, that there were not that many good people. There were more bad people than good people. And that the people of Goethe and Schiller, of Beethoven and Heine, uh, turned out to be uh, the worst beasts in the history of civilization. And therefore, uh, there's a tremendous uh, residue of guilt, shame, embarrassment, the bankruptcy of Western civilization. The Holocaust is the bankruptcy of Western civilization. Because you see, after the Holocaust, everything can happen again. The world didn't pick itself up, right? And 300,000 people got killed in the last year in Darfur, and you know, nobody, you know, nobody even knows where Darfur is. Who cares? 800,000 people got killed in the, in the war between the Tutsis and the, uh, and the Hutus in, uh, in West Africa. Who cares? Hundreds of thousands of children are walking around maimed without an arm, without a leg. Not our problem. And, uh, the horrors that uh, the communist world brought upon its citizens and others, China, Russia, whoever it was. So uh, we live in a world of uh, absolute depravity. And there's a certain sense of shame. The church uh, reels from that shame. As I'm going to discuss that the Jews don't know what to do with the Holocaust, but the church certainly doesn't know what to do with the Holocaust. So you have such conflicting messages. On one hand, uh, Pope Pius XII is going to be made a saint. He's on the process of being canonized. On the other hand, uh, you have... Uh, all sorts of evidence of uh, uh, the complicity of the church and of the fact that there are tens of thousands, maybe today hundreds of thousands, of people in Europe whose grandparents were Jewish and who were given over to the church as children in order to escape from certain death and who were raised as Catholics and who the church will, uh, under no circumstances, countenance the fact that they should somehow be restored to the Jewish people. Uh, the rabbi in Prague told me when I was there, he said, I asked him how many Jews are there in Prague. He said, there are 5,000 Jews uh, but there's another 50,000 around. And if you look at the Jewish populations of Europe, uh, 
uh, you realize that uh, there's a lot of Jewish blood. And all of that almost has been lost to us. And therefore, it's a problem. And part of the solution to the problem is to say that it never happened. Or that it didn't happen the way you say it happened. We also have political motives. You'll notice that in all of the formerly communist countries, uh, all the victims of Nazism are Russians or Poles. They never were Jews. It was portrayed not as a Jewish problem. So you have Elie Wiesel's famous statement, that not every victim of the Holocaust was a Jew, but every Jew was a potential victim. But uh, that was denied by the communists all the years. The propaganda of the communists has done more to injure us than, uh, than even the bullets that they supply to our enemies. Uh, the tremendous anti-Semitism in the Muslim world was produced by Russia in the 1960s and the 1970s. And all of these ideas all stemmed from this ideological madness that you were going to build a utopian world and you could build it on the, on the backs of a hundred million dead. It made no difference because the end certainly justified the means. So you have... Absolute political motives. Uh, As I mentioned, the president of Iran fits into his program perfectly. Because by denying the Holocaust, you delegitimize the Jewish people and you delegitimize the state of Israel. Now, it could be that was a great mistake for the state of Israel also to say that it's entitled to be here because of the Holocaust. That is coming back to haunt us. We're entitled to be here because it's our country. Because it's our homeland. Because it was given to us by God. But we have the longest standing claim to it. Ben-Gurion said in 1936, in his testimony to the Peel Commission, that the Bible is our deed to the land. But you don't hear that anymore. Because you have generations that don't know the Bible, don't believe the Bible. And because of that, uh, if you search around for other reasons, it becomes much easier to delegitimize us, to take away any real reason as to why we should be here and why it belongs to us. One of the positive things that happens here that I think also feeds this Holocaust denial has been the very fact of the Jewish resiliency after the Holocaust. Can you imagine... uh, I, I remember uh, I remember the Jewish world in 1946 
I was a child yet, but I but it made a tremendous impression on me. It was depressed, it was broken, with little hope. Nobody spoke about it. It was beyond our understanding as to what was going to happen to the Jewish people. And here, uh, 60 years later, in all of the countries where Jews live, Jews have rebuilt themselves. Here in Israel, right? so here we have a first world country in the middle of a, the worst neighborhood in the world. And under tremendous problems, almost in spite of ourselves, we have succeeded in a way that no one could have imagined. Uh, so much so that one of the claims of the uh, Muslim world regarding 9-11 was that the Mossad did it because they said the Arabs aren't smart enough to do something like that, to plan it and do it. The Jews must have done it. But that very resilience... Uh, the Jewish community has built itself in the United States in spite of the assimilation and in spite of the intermarriage there's a tremendous vibrancy in the Jewish community so that itself uh, creates a form of uh, pernicious jealousy how could it be people that was uh, almost destroyed that had no friends. Look at this. Uh, so therefore, we have to say that, well, it really, they weren't in such bad shape. There are uh, Jewish revisionist historians that have written uh, regarding the war of independence here in Israel. So for years we all thought that the War of Independence was close to being miraculous because the Jews were undermanned and undergunned and the British opposed them. And all of, you know, and look, they won the war against seven Arab armies. Well, if you say that, then it causes you to think and to think in a way that you don't want to think. So therefore, revisionist historians come and said, no, the Jews were better organized, they had a better army, they had better intelligence, they had enough weapons. It was, uh, it was a cakewalk from the beginning. Because that relieves you of the problem of having somehow to decipher what happened and may lead one to think, therefore, that somehow the Jewish people are special. Our whole basis in the world is being special. The Holocaust is also special. And if we're going to be, Israel, if we're going to be like everyone else, we're not special. So if we're not special, then... Uh, then all of this can be denied. And uh, I think that uh, that plays a great role. Uh, and you see it especially in, uh, in op-ed pieces that are written both here and in 
Chutzlaretz, outside of Israel, uh, that constantly try to remove any feeling of uniqueness from us. I mentioned many times that the Novi Yechesko relates to us that in the time of the uh, destruction of the first temple, so there was an interregnum of uh, 50, 60 years between uh, the time of the destruction of the temple and the time that Jews started to return under Zerubovel and then later under Ezra. So the Jews were in Bovel. So the grandfather in Bovel, who came from, you know, the Alterheim, he came from Yerushalayim. So when the Babylonians said, Sing for us songs of Zion. So they said, How can we sing the songs of the Levim in the temple? And we're going to sing it on Babylonian shores. So the Gemara says they bit off the tips of their thumbs so they couldn't play the harp. That was that generation. Second generation already said, listen, we're here, you know. I have to make a living. The third generation said, you know, everybody has to go to uh, the University of Babylonia. Fourth generation came to the Novi Yecheskel, and they said to him, "Kachol agoyim beis Yisrael." What are not spelling? What, what is all of this? We're never going back to Israel. God is. Well, don't tell us the old stories. Kachol agoyim beis Yisrael. We're just like everyone else. The Novi, uh, strangely enough, didn't know what to answer them. So he said, come back tomorrow, uh, I'll ask God tonight. He has a dream, and the Lord appears to him, so to speak, and the Lord says to him, what happened today, right? You know, you have a busy day at the office, what happened today here? And he said, oh, the elders of Israel came, and they said, they said, we quit. We're going to be Jews of the Babylonian persuasion. We're going to be Babylonians, rather, of the, of the Jewish persuasion, the Mosaic persuasion. What shall I say to them? So God says to him, Thus says God, Now tell him to forget it. That's not going to be. That you're going to be like everybody else, that is not going to be that. Forget that. I will rule over you in wrath and anger with an outstretched hand. And the Gemara says that there comes Homan right around the corner. Babylonia folds. Babylonia was supposed to be there forever. Like Moscow was supposed to be forever. Everything is, you know, nothing ever is going to change. And here's Homan. And one day he's going to solve the Jewish problem. So 
So you're not so you are special. He's not after anybody else. There's no other country as a nation that's under threat of being eliminated except for the state of Israel. And so, therefore, uh, if one can deny even the special uh, pain of the Jewish people, the Novi says, Hayesh machov kemachovi. Is there a pain like mine? Is there anguish like mine? Well, if you can say, you know, it's not special, never happened, it's much less. Uh, so then that becomes a matter of comfort. Somehow it becomes a matter that people can deal with. So I think that those are the main reasons for a Holocaust denial in the general world. That's why it thrives. That's why no film, no book, no testimony, no museum are going to change is going to change that in any meaningful fashion. And if we say that now, when there still are thousands of survivors alive, what shall we say 50, 80, 100 years from now, when it only is a matter of tradition? And then it will be much easier to say that it never happened. But there's a Jewish form of Holocaust denial as well which is very pernicious. And it, uh, to me at least, it's very disturbing. There's an entire school of thought in the Jewish world to obliterate Jewish history. It never happened. Uh, there is a, uh, pre- a uh, Chumash an English translation of a Chumash that was uh, produced by uh, one of the progressive pluralistic branches of our people. And in the back, there are a series of essays by uh, rabbis. One of the essays, written by one of the distinguished rabbis, says, uh, you know, that the exodus from Egypt never occurred. It never was. We have no historical evidence. Never occurred. In fact, he chose that to be the topic of his sermon on Pesach morning to his congregation, which, if the congregation therefore had any logic, would say, uh, so then, uh, you know, let's all go to the ball game. And then uh, Maimed Harsinai never occurred. Uh, we don't know if the temple occurred. We don't know anything. We don't know. We have no evidence. You know, all of the Jewish history is a blank. And because of that, the denial of Jewish history ultimately leads to the denial of the Holocaust also, because once you start to deny, then you can deny anything and everything. 
We have a world that doesn't accept the basic... Now I'm not talking about principles of faith. I'm not talking about the 13 animamins of the Rambam. It does not accept the basic story of the Jewish people. Every nation has a story. Every family has a story. Every person has a story. The story is many times more important than any of the tenets of faith. We just went through the holiday of Pesach. The holiday of Pesach is the story. We sit down at the Seder and we tell the story. And that's what kept us going uh, for uh, uh, the over 3,300 years since the first Pesach. But if it never happened, if I can say it never happened, if we have no story, people who have no story are doomed to disappear. And that's exactly what it was, in my opinion, where the problem lies. It's not that people are not observant. It's not that people intermarry. They're not observant and they intermarry because they have no story. And here, in Eretz Yisrael, in the state of Israel, to a great extent, the story begins in 1948, or if you want to be charitable, it begins in 1897. But what happened before then? It's a blank. And therefore, that creates within the Jewish society itself, a tremendous vacuum. And in that vacuum, denial thrives. It exists. And because of that, therefore, uh, all sorts of mechanisms have to be used in order that we should be able to remember. To remember something that happened 60 years ago, to remember something that my grandparents went through. Why do I need a mechanism for it? And we see all of the mechanisms, and I don't uh, downgrade them, I don't demean them, right? But uh, all of the museums in the world and all of the documentaries, etc., will not preserve the Jewish people. You know who wanted to make a museum of the Jewish people? Hitler. In Prague, he gathered artifacts from all over Europe, put them together. He was going to have the greatest museum of the Jewish people. He was going to show the world that there once was such a people, and this is what they looked like, and this is what they did. And Our museum always was the synagogue, the Bet Midrash, even more importantly, the home. That was our museum. That's where everything lived. But once that was destroyed, destroyed by secularism, by all sorts of isms, mostly by, originally by rebellion and later only by ignorance, so then... Uh, the denials are fast and furious. So a hundred years from now, there will be people that say it never happened. 
or it was exaggerated. Second type of denial exists in the Jewish world because the Holocaust raises probably the greatest question of faith, certainly in our time. How could such a thing happen? How could God allow it to happen? How could human beings allow it to happen? How did it happen? So there were people who uh, marched out of the camps with greater faith, and there were people who lost their faith completely. I've met both kinds. I don't know what motivates one and not the other. It's too difficult to uh, somehow deal with. It's the supreme test of faith. And that's why people who were fortunate enough, as I am, never to have been in Europe in the, that period of time, uh, cannot say anything about anybody. I saw an interview with Eli Wiesel, uh, <clears throat> I think it was in Midstream magazine. The interviewer was a friend of ours, Joe Lowen, who was a member of our shul in Munsing. And uh, he uh, discussed faith with Wiesel. Uh, so he asked Wiesel, uh, from reading your book, a night, I gather, he said, that you lost your faith in Auschwitz. And he says, but now, well, you know, you're the head of the uh, Gerr Schniebel on the west side in uh, New York. Every Shabbos, you're there. He said, what happened? And Wiesel, in his inimitable fashion, said, I have a son and a grandson. He said, I cannot give my son and my grandson Auschwitz and hope that somehow uh, they will remain Jewish. Uh, but he said, if I give them the Gerrish Diebel, I have a chance. Somehow I have a chance. And he said, it's important, the most important thing in my life now that my family be Jewish. Because the destruction of the Holocaust was that there should be no Jews in the world. And therefore, the reaction to the Holocaust should be that there should be a vibrant, strong, vital, and large Jewish community in the world. So it's an enormous test of faith. Because of this test of faith, there are many Jewish schools in the, in the world that do not study anything about the Holocaust. Uh, Yad Vashem just concluded a curriculum that they made for the Haredi school system here in Israel. And it's been implemented in many of the schools. But they made it in the year 2003... Uh, and the Holocaust was over in 1945. For 60 years, there was nothing. 
because it's a tremendous uh, it's a tremendous test of faith. Questions are asked that are unanswerable. Anyone that tries to give simple answers, why a million and a half children under the age of 12 were killed, you tell me why, right? So that's only God's judgment. You can only leave it to Him. And any answer that we give will be banal, will be foolish. But a question hovers hovers over the Jewish people. But as we have seen throughout Jewish history, uh, when the Jews have suffered disasters, and many, many disasters, is that their resiliency somehow uh, came into play. And, you know, after the Crusades, so the Balitasis constructed uh, their great yeshivas in France and in Germany. And after Tachvatat, after 1648 and 1649, the Hasidic movement came in the world, the Muslim movement came in the world, the return to Zion came in the world. The Jewish reaction to tragedy has always been not to explain it, but to pick oneself up, so to speak, from the floor and go ahead and do something. Because the explanation is not there. And that's a form of denial. It has to be. Another factor that exists is that uh, Zionism is mixed in to this entire picture. Zionism, uh, the single greatest, uh, you'll understand what I mean, the single greatest disruptive force in Jewish life because it divided the Jewish people in half. Not in half, originally the Zionists were the minority And it made for strange bedfellows. Yeah, the uh, majority of the Orthodox world aligned with Reform Judaism to oppose Zionism. And uh, <clears throat> we see uh, today, when we have the State of Israel, uh, Ben-Gurion's famous quip, about Zionism is that it's the only woman in the world that still wears maternity clothes after the baby has been born. One would think that the state of Israel is going to celebrate its 58th anniversary, God willing. Uh, so we should be beyond that already, right? It's here. So there's no use arguing about Theodore Herzl anymore because it's not germane to us today. But uh, Jews can never let a good fight go. We hang it, we treasure it, we hang on to it. Whether it's in shul or in the house or in the school or in the Jewish people nationally. So we still are fighting battles since 60, 80, 100 years old. Battles that have been settled, not by us, but by the events that have taken place. Is there any room anymore for the battles between the Chesidim and Misnagdim? Right? Uh, 
almost 300 years since the Baal Shem Tov. So one would think that that battle is over, right? But it's not over. Because we don't let go. And part of this entire problem with the Holocaust is mixed up with Zionism because Zionism and the Holocaust somehow have become identified with each other. So you have that today, right? The, the uh, siren blows. There are Jews that ignore it. It's not because of the fact that they have no compassion or they have no memory. It's because it's a different battle that's being fought. And if you only see it on the surface, so then the, the uh, and I'm not here to justify anyone's behavior, but if you only see it on the surface, you don't really understand what the issue is. The issue runs far deeper than that. And because of that, therefore, it becomes very, very painful and very, very divisive. There's another factor that's involved. Uh, I'm not a psychologist uh, nor a psychiatrist, though uh, people have recommended both to me. Uh, but there's a syndrome of the person that's abused who after a while is convinced that it is his or her fault why they are being abused. And that syndrome of guilt, if, if the whole world hates us, right? If the, if the United Nations votes 197 times resolutions against us, if the church is against us, if the Muslim world is against us, if the professors are against us, if the European Union is against us, so it must be our fault. And somehow there are enough academicians within the Jewish world that internalize that message and look to find our faults. Now, we do have faults. But there's no fault that justifies the hatred. There's no fault that justifies the Holocaust. That is all nonsense. Uh, in the United States now, they have the privilege of paying over $3 a gallon of gas. We who've had that privilege for many, many years are not phased by that at all. But in the United States, it's, it's a disaster, right? It's the headline, it's what they, oh, it's $3, yeah. So I remember the last time that there was such a crisis, which was after the 1972, after the Yom Kippur War. And uh, uh, then there was a shortage of gasoline in the United States because of the Arab oil boycott. And it was a very dangerous time in the United States uh, because you can deprive Americans almost of everything. But if you take their automobile away, that, that's World War III. People that go without health insurance in order to drive a $50,000 car, which they hope they won't get into an accident with. 
there is a victimology within the Jewish people, a victim syndrome that makes a lot of things that happen our fault, right? So it's our fault. We're occupiers, right? We shoot people. We don't have... If only we... There are political parties that run on that platform that it's all our fault. And you have to be, uh, in my opinion, quite sophisticated to be able to draw the line between because of me and it's my fault. But that breeds also within us a certain Holocaust denial. And we look for reasons why it happened. And the religious world, the reasons are religiously uh, observant, uh, etc. Somebody once told me a whole slew of sins. And I told him that I couldn't accept it, so he felt that I was outside the pale. And in the less religious world, the less observant world... So then there are all sorts of moral failings. And then there are those that say, uh, you read Amos Alone's book on uh, Jews in Germany in the 19th century called The Pity of It All, fabulous book. And basically he says it was their fault because they, they all became doctors and they all became musical conductors and they, and they all became the department store owners and they all uh, the newspaper editors. And so therefore the Germans, what did you expect from them? So that's also our fault. It's our fault that you know that Almond wins the Nobel Prize. It's our fault that the state of Israel somehow, in spite of everything, works. So there's that psychology. Uh, that exists within us, which also contributes, therefore, to this uh, syndrome of Holocaust denial. Because we can't let it rest. We must have done something. And finally, uh, Judaism preaches always a sense of perspective. You have to put everything in a big frame. You can't see the picture without the frame. Now, uh, for whatever reasons, and I cannot second-guess God, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah told us in advance that this was going to happen. You look at the 98... uh, Verses of the Tochecho, which exist in the Parsha of Kitovo. It's uh, absolutely a uh, documentary on the Holocaust. Every word. Not one word. There's not one word of hyperbole, of exaggeration in it. Rashi comments there uh, that you'll try and... uh, Ransom yourselves, buy yourselves out, and nobody will buy you because they all wanted you destroyed. Then they won't let you in anywhere, even when you can help them, even when it's to their advantage. 
So there's a historical perspective that explains nothing, but nevertheless encompasses our picture. If that historical perspective is not present, if no one knows the Tochacha, if no one has any idea as to what Jewish history was and is, so then naturally uh, the, the Holocaust takes a far greater toll uh, than otherwise it would. And uh, <clears throat> this also uh, creates... Uh, I, I, I hate to go back to Spielberg, but the Spielberg is a good example. He made Schindler's List, and then he made a movie, Munich, in order to atone for Schindler's List. Because otherwise, you know, how could it be? So it must be that you and the Palestinians are the same, the terrorists... And the Mossad, everybody is equal, right? The relative morality in the world. And there's no perspective on anything. And it's a nice story, and that's it. And he's unassailable because he made Schindler's List. So, in effect, what has happened, and I've heard this from people, uh, that if you assail Munich, then they say, well, you know, Schindler's List is also like that. So then that becomes the Holocaust denial. God said to us through the Novi Malachi, Ani Hashem lo shonisi. I, the Lord God, I have not changed. I haven't changed, right? I'm still, that's why we say, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchok, Elokei Yaakov. We don't say, Elokei the Baal Shem Tov, Elokei the Gvigon of Vilna. We don't say that. Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchok, Elokei Yaakov. Lo Shanisi, I'm the same from time immemorial. There are no New Testaments, there are no new ideas, there are no substitute religion. Lo Shanisi, I didn't change, the Navi says. And the proof of it, you, the children of Jacob, the Jewish people, have not been destroyed. I will preserve you. Because just as I am here, you have to be here also. And that perspective of the Jewish people uh, is really the core belief of Israel. It's why five and a half million of us live in this country, why we all don't pick up and go to Canada. It's the reason for the Jewish resilience. It's the reason why there's a Jewish people in the world. That's the frame to our story. And even to the most disturbing parts of the story, for which we have no explanations, and for which we grieve, because the casualties are enormous, as whole generations are missing in the Jewish world. Not just numerically, but in all sorts of fields. All gone. Nevertheless, uh, we shall persevere. 
In Yiddish, they used to say, Nobody ever died because of a good question, of a problem. The Holocaust is an excellent question. It's a problem that will always haunt us. But our determination to survive and prosper and be the Jewish people, uh, that is really our answer to it. And that is what, in the end, will frustrate all the deniers, both within and without, and will be privileged to happier days and stronger days. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That's 1-800-499-9346, or at our 24-hour fax, 845-368-1528. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com, and you can shop online at www.rabbiwine.com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture except through the Destiny Foundation.